All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. And this morning we come to an end of a 10-month journey through the book of Revelation. A book that some, I think most, consider the most mysterious book of the New Testament. And yet, John and God promise us that by reading it, we will be blessed in such a unique way that it will change our Christian perspective going forward. As we come to the conclusion, we pick it up in verse 6 of chapter 22. And after we have walked through this book for 10 months, as John initiated the book by in chapter 1 by pointing and showing us Jesus as a returning king prepared to judge the world for the sin within the world. In chapters 2 and 3, he addresses seven churches, preparing them for the coming of the Messiah. In chapters 4 and 5, we get a glimpse of heaven and the throne room of God. And from chapters 6 through 19, we go through seven years, a period of time that the Bible calls the tribulation. The last three and a half of those years, the great tribulation period. In Revelation chapter 19, we saw the physical return of Jesus Christ to this earth. In Revelation chapter 20, we we watched, we saw the great white throne judgment and the millennial kingdom take place. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we have seen the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and the most intimate part of the new Jerusalem, the garden that it contains, where we shall see him face to face. You just got the whole book in five minutes. You're like, well, I'm, I, I could have just came for today and gotten the whole thing. But you would have missed out on a lot. So the question that I think that naturally then comes is, how does John end this book? How does John end this letter? Remember, he's writing on an island called Patmos in exile. The Romans didn't know what to do with John. They tried to eliminate John by boiling him in oil, and they didn't succeed. He didn't die. He wasn't affected by it. So they shipped him off, say, out of sight, out of mind. They put him out on an island called Patmos, where there he resided. And while he was there, some believe in his 90s at that time, he saw... I should say, this revelation being given to him by God and recorded it for us all. Of course, we know that he was taken off that island and the letter then was dispersed throughout the early church. But how does he end it? It's a fascinating question. How do we go through all that we have just seen and how does John end it? He ends it with an invitation and he ends it with a warning. And so as we begin, we realize that John wants us to know that the hope of heaven isn't simply a destination. It is a motivation and should have immediate impact on each and every one of us, knowing that what we do here and now today will reverberate in heaven and eternity forever. This is our moment to store, as Jesus said so eloquently, treasures in heaven. This vision of the heavenly city is a vision of hope that the patriarchs themselves throughout the Bible looked forward to. Notice with me in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 verses 13 through 16. Notice what the Hebrew writer states. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. The hope of heaven changed their perspective of the here and now in each of their lives and motivated them to continue. 
For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out of, they would, not, they would have had the opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Not only should it be a tremendous source of hope for each and every one of us, it also should motivate us here and now to look forward to what will occur and what I can do now to again store up those treasures in heaven. How will it impact my life? In fact, you know that Jesus Christ used the hope of the return to heaven to encourage him and strengthen him before going to the cross. Notice with me in Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking on to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, knowing what the eternal outcome will be for him going to the cross, he found joy in that and was willing to endure the cross on our behalf. The assurance of heaven must not lull us into complacency or carelessness, but spur us to fulfill our spiritual duties, to motivate us now. At the baptism, I was sitting with some folks, and we were talking. And someone said something to me that I thought was absolutely profound. As we looked forward into the future through the lens of the book of Revelation, it is equally important that we remember the here and now. That we cannot look at Revelation together and not consider what God would have us to do today. What would God have us to do at this moment as Christians? So for the next several weeks on Sunday, we're going to be looking at various passages of the New Testament that explain to us specifically, believers in the last days, on how God would have us to use this time, here and now, in a series called, So Now What? What do I do with all that I have learned from the book of Revelation? Yes, I know what's going to happen, but here and now, in this moment, what would the Lord have me to do? Did he not say, shall we not occupy until he comes? Occupy with what? How should we apply ourselves? We have now the motivation of heaven, but what do we apply that motivation to as Christians? And that's what we'll be looking at next for a few weeks. Well, let's turn now to Revelation chapter 22, verse 6, and let's read the conclusion of this letter together. And the first thing that John wants us to know is that everything that he wrote is faithful and true. Notice with me in verse 6. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show his servants the things which must shortly take place place. Number one, the words of Revelation are faithful, trustworthy is another good word to use there, and true. We live in a world today where truth is relative. Truth is dependent on the person's personal experiences. The manner in which they conclude what is true and false is no longer based upon facts, but often feelings, and those feelings then subjected to the various experiences that people have in life. And this is due to the fact that we in the United States of America are no longer governed by the ideas of modernity or modernism. We are governed by the ideas of what is now called postmodernism. What started some 20 years ago, earlier than that in universities, has now completely 
overshadowed the whole nation. And on a Wednesday night, I'm going to be doing something on the issue of postmodernism because many Christians are now currently relating to God through a postmodern mindset. And it is very limiting and it is very misleading. And we need to talk about it if we are going to be honest. Many pastors see that things have changed, but they can't articulate what that change is. Many pastors don't understand why they are not seeing the fruit today that they saw maybe 20 years ago. It's because people are receiving information differently today than they did 30 years ago. And because of that, one of the outworkings of postmodernism is this, that truth is all relative. One of the things a postmodern person disregards and is absolutely opposed to is what's called a meta-narrative, meaning that there's an overarching account that is taking place that is actually in control and governing all things around us. And yet that's exactly what the Bible is. They believe that they are independent of any meta-narrative, and yet that couldn't be farther from the truth. The Bible says that we are of one of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world. Those meta-narratives are playing out regardless of the personal belief of the individual. I love when I talk to my atheist friends and they tell me, well, I don't believe God exists. And somehow, some way, they believe that because they don't believe that he exists, that he doesn't exist. And therefore, he, they're not accountable to him. Can you imagine the great shock that they are going to be in for to discover that their belief in him or not didn't govern his existence? Think about that for a moment. The postmodern mindset is the mindset that we are currently engulfed in today. And as a result, people are processing information differently, not upon facts anymore, but the most powerful tool in communicating information is what's called a narrative, a story, a story. And this story can be very powerful. Why? Because it provokes emotional responses. And so a narrative then can be offered, and the narrative can be false, and therefore the narrative can lead them to the end, to destruction, when in actuality, the narrative they believed was 100% true, and they were governing their life by it. Jesus kind of said it this way, there's a broad way and there's a narrow way, right? The broad way seems right to man, but in the end it is destruction. We need to know this. We need to understand why our world thinks the way it does and how Satan is capitalizing on that and leading so many to destruction. In the wake of this, Jesus said this to you and I. These words ring true today. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, we know that objective Absolute truth exists, and we find it in and through the person of Jesus Christ. That is our compass. That is the rock in which we stand upon. For Timothy, uh, uh, Paul warned us in Timothy that these days would come. Notice with me in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. He said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires... Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. You know what that word fables could also be in English? Lies, but more importantly, narratives. Stories. Notice that. Stories. Fables. Narratives. Very interesting that Paul would say that over 2,000 years ago. Notice with me as we continue in verse 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Not only can we be assured of the fact that everything that he says is true, we can be assured of the fact that everything predicted within it is going to come to pass. 
People like to argue from what I call the position of silence. Well, God promised these things 2,000 years ago, and they still haven't happened, so therefore I conclude that they never will happen. Think about that logic for a moment. Just because it hasn't happened yet means it's never, ever going to happen, ever. Think about that for a moment. Really? Is that how things work? Just because it hasn't happened yet, it'll never happen again? I bet you they felt that way about his first coming, right? Oh, yeah, God's been promising the Messiah for, you know, ever. And then the star proclaimed his glory, and he was born in Bethlehem and fulfilled 300 prophecies concerning his first coming and everything. Yeah, it hasn't happened yet. But God is telling us that if he predicted it, it is going to happen. Now, I don't think we have to make much of an argument that we see the world barreling like a freight train towards the end time scenario. We have been pulling that out for the very last 10 months. But notice here with me, in Isaiah 46, 11, God told his people that if he predicts something and promises something, it will come to pass. Isaiah says, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, indeed I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. All right. So just because the events haven't happened yet, the stage is certainly being set. The cast is waiting in the wings, and it is only a matter of time until the curtain is drawn back, and everything that God says is going to happen will happen. Notice he says here, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of this prophecy. What does he mean by keeping them? Number one, it means to know them. To know them. Number two, it means to heed them. The instruction given to us in the book of Revelation is not to be dismissed or neglected. What God has prescribed in Revelation, we are to practice. And that is preparedness, awareness, being informed. Not Christians who like to pattern themselves out of the lovely creation that God calls an ostrich. Burying our heads in the sand. Pretending that none of this is happening that is happening around us. We need to be looking for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Waiting for and patiently uh, living and occupying until He comes. Not on the sideline. Not in the bleachers, but actively involved in what he would have us to do here and now at this moment. There is a big difference between hearing something and heeding it. Oh, we may hear something. You know, my students, uh, they hear me say, okay, let's settle down. But they don't heed it all of a sudden. It takes some time for it to sink in. How often do we hear the Word of God, but we don't heed it? We don't look to apply it. We don't look to live it out. We have head knowledge concerning God, but when it becomes life action or wisdom within our life, we're reluctant. And yet that's exactly what God would say to do. Keep the words of this book. Notice with me in verse 8. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard... And so I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Now before you're too hard on John, if an angel were to appear in the middle of us, I bet you I, we'd, some of us would bow down, right? Okay, let's be honest. These angels are formidable cre uh, creatures. They are absolutely something of a majestic nature. But right away, the angel says to John in verse 9, Then he said to me, that is the angel, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. I love that. 
We in America need to get back to the idea that when we come to church, the centerpiece of any church should be the person of Jesus Christ. Is that something that we can all agree on here at Calvary? That has to be the centerpiece. It has to be about God. Paul said it this way. Paul said it this way. That Jesus Christ should reign in the preeminence of our heart. Meaning he is the one that should be sitting on the throne of our heart. Now, many today, I believe, see Jesus as a supplement to their life. A supplement that you would find in their medicine cabinet. All right, let me ask you a question. Have you ever gone over to someone's house, used the washroom, and looked in their medicine cabinet? Confess now before God, okay? Okay, Mark Tree has. Please do not invite him over to your house, okay? A little concerned that he's an usher here. He also goes through your coats. Uh, you know, make sure that we hit our budget every month, you know. Everybody's like, great, let's go find another church, man, right away. We have a tendency to look at Jesus as one of the vitamin supplements to our life. I need a little, you know, I'm feeling a little run down, a little vitamin D, maybe some B12, and oh, I'm feeling a little, a little sick today, maybe some vitamin C. Oh, I'm just a little down today. I need a little Jesus in my life. Okay, that's not preeminence. I don't know what you would call that, but that's not preeminence. We should begin our day realizing that Jesus Christ is on the throne of our hearts, and therefore our approach to the day is this. Lord, not my will be done, your will be done. Paul said it this way, let us lay ourselves as living sacrifices before the Lord, which is that perfect and acceptable will of God. That's what he says there. Once we get back to that, once we make Jesus the centerpiece, as depicted in the scriptures, not our own rendition of Jesus, not the Jesus that is uh, uh, created out of the eclecticism of the various ideas that people hold and experiences that they had. The biblical Jesus Christ. That must be the centerpiece of our worship. Worship God. In verse 10, and he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. That's very similar to what they said to Daniel in the book of Daniel chapter 12. When Daniel was given this book, he was told to keep it sealed because the time had not yet come. And these words were spoken in Daniel 12 verses 1 through 4. And at that time, Michael shall stand up, that is Michael the archangel, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time, at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book, this is the book of life, and many of those who sleep in the dust, that those who have died of the earth shall awake, there are resurrection, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words, close it up, seal it up. And seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Meaning we're going to understand it more as we get closer to the end. And I think that's what's happening. We're getting closer to the end. But notice with me this constant reference to, I'm coming quickly, I'm coming soon. And this has confused some. Because what is he saying? It's been 2,000 years. Well, 1,000 years is as a day to the Lord, right? So it's only been a couple days. But more importantly than that, what did he mean by these things? What he meant by it is this. That when these events begin, they're going to fall like dominoes. It's going to be a succession that happens very quickly. And in the anticipation, he wanted to keep generations expectant of the return of Jesus Christ. The first century church thought they were going to, he was going to return in their time. It's known as the imminent return of Christ. It keeps us on our toes. 
It keeps us looking up. It keeps us moving forward, knowing that our Lord will return at a moment, at a time that we do not know. And yet, we know it could happen in our lifetime. Now, I want to bring up a very interesting thing that Dr. Robert Morris brings up in his famous commentary on Revelation. And I think he is absolutely correct in the grammar that is found. We look at the brink or the perusa, the coming of Jesus Christ, as of an event, a line that we are running towards, okay? It is because as individual finite beings, we look at time in a linear fashion. But more importantly, the grammar through the New Testament, Robert Morris offers this suggestion. It isn't a line that we are so much... What is... I just killed the communion cup. (laughs) Funeral will be right after service. It's not so much a line that we are running towards. The perusa, the coming of Jesus Christ... The brink of his return is not a line we're running towards. It's a line that we're running alongside. And at any moment, it's going to turn and cross our path. It's in a parallel. Some would say, if you look at it from a point of physics, maybe more dimensional. Now, I know that might sound bizarre to you, but why isn't that or why couldn't that be possible? The language talks about Jesus appearing in a very interesting way. And again, their language confined to the Greek language at that time had only certain words that they could use for certain things. So what happens if that we are running alongside the brink of the end and at any time those lines will cross and that is when the return of Jesus Christ appears? I think that that is more probable. It keeps us looking for him, waiting for him, rather than a linear line that we are just simply going to intersect with. It is a line that we are running across, and in God's prescribed time, that line will cross. It's something for you to consider, and I think there's a lot of merit to it. But while we are running along that line in parallel, notice with me in verse 12, he says again, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give everyone according to his work. For I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do the commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates of the city. But outsiders are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you that these things in the churches, I am the root of David, the offspring of David, excuse me, the bright and morning star. Let's stop there. Notice with me in verse 11, there's this very interesting verse. What did Jesus mean when he said this? What did John mean when he wrote this? Who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. What is he saying here? That if you decide to, you know, dismiss the claims of Revelation... And remain in your sin, so shall you remain in your sin. If you decide to heed the words of Revelation, and you decide to turn to God and to repent, then you will continue in the righteous living and in the end be one welcomed into the new Jerusalem. Meaning that this is a pivot point. It's a moment of opportunity. It is the day of salvation. It is saying, look, you can't just simply read these things and dismiss them. If you choose to do so, you will die in your sins. That's what he's saying here. This is powerful stuff. He's saying it's very important to heed the warning of these words. 
But as we move into chapter, uh, verse 12, again, that the issue of quickly is brought before us. And as we said, it could happen at any moment. The return of Jesus Christ will happen in, in a moment of our unexpecting. But he says two things here. Number one, he says that everyone is going to be held accountable for what they have done. We know that in Revelation chapter 20, those who died apart from Jesus Christ stood before what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. At that moment, the books are open. And in those books, we discovered that every deed, thought, and word was recorded. And they were judged according to those books. And some believe that they are going to enter into heaven simply on the basis that their good outweighs their bad. And God will say, hey, you've done a, you got in by five points. You made it. But that's not the case. The standard for the entrance into heaven is perfection. That is something that none of us can obtain or maintain in and of ourselves. That's why God sent us Jesus. And what we couldn't do, he did on our behalf. He allowed us not only the forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future, which brought us to a sum gain of zero, okay? Meaning that those things that we shouldn't have done have now been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. But to get into heaven, it isn't only the omission of those sins, it is also the realization that righteousness must be done. So how is that righteousness done? It is imputed to us by Christ himself. He cleanses us from all of our sins, past, present, and future, and then he robes us with his robe of righteousness, allowing God the Father to see us perfect, not in and of ourselves, but in and, in and of Christ. This is exactly what Paul was trying to communicate in the book of Romans. That justification and righteousness doesn't come in and through us, it comes in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we as believers will also be held accountable. We see the unbeliever in Revelation chapter 20, but do you know that the Bible also says that we as believers will have to stand before Jesus? It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It talks about this Bema seat of Christ where you and I will stand before him and it will not be their salvation that hangs in the balances. What it will be, it will be the rewards for everything we did in Christ. It will be the moment that we receive the crown of the culmination and the completion of everything that we have done. And those things we did with selfish motivations, those things we did to please ourselves in our new Christian life, they'll be burned up as wood, hay, and stubble. And those things that we did genuinely for Christ will be like precious stones. And it will be those things that constitute our crown. We are going to be held accountable. It isn't for sin, it's for the motivations of our heart and those things that we have done in the name of Christ. Basically, it is how we spent the new life that Jesus Christ gave us. Now, before you get, oh, hey, that's pretty cool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a really nice one. I'll have to get a couple of my friends to help me carry it, you know. Personally, I think we're all going to be very surprised. I think many are going to stand before Christ at that moment and think that they are going to receive an abundance when in actuality they get the equivalence of what we would consider a Burger King crown. And it's those people that we never heard of, those obscure individuals that the world never took notice of, the person who was confined to their bed because of a physical illness, and yet he or she took that time and prayed on the behalf of everyone they could pray for. And as they walk up to that, they're the ones that we may have to help carry theirs. Now, I'm saying this somewhat facetiously, but I do want to ask you to consider how are you spending the new life that Jesus Christ has given you? Are you spending it on yourself? 
Or are you spending it to allow yourself to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after Him? That's a question I wrestle with every single day of my life. Lord, you saved me, but you saved me for a purpose. You saved me for something more than me. You saved me to glorify you. How may I do that today? You can do that in your workplace. You can do that in your family. Don't think that those things keep you and hinder you from glorifying God. It is in those things that God may have placed you that you may glorify Him and that the world may take notice. It is at this moment in time that we'll be rewarded for those things. Now, let me ask you another thing. This is where we store for ourselves treasures in heaven and those treasures in heaven are rewarded to us. But also, let us know this. These crowns will not be carried with us for all eternity. Because in Revelation chapter 5, it says that our last act of adoration and worship of Jesus Christ is that when we see the Lamb who has been slain from the foundations of the world, we will throw our crowns at His feet. Why? Because it is Him and only Him that all of this is possible. It's not for our glory, it's for His. And I don't know about you, but I... I think I'd be maybe a little concerned if I was placing a Burger King crown at the foot of Jesus. I just want you to think about that for a minute because many Christians don't. But notice what he says here. He's coming with his reward in his hand. With me, he says. Meaning he knows what we are going through. He knows what we have done. He knows the suffering that we have encountered. And he is there to reward accordingly. Then he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the Greek alphabet to the end of the Greek alphabet. Every word created in English is created by the 26 letters of our alphabet. Okay? So what John is being writing here, what Jesus is saying about himself here, is that he is the source of all knowledge. He is it. If we want to understand our world, if we want to understand ourselves, we need to see ourselves through the Word of God. We need to see ourselves as Jesus sees us. Now that might be scary at first. But know that when God saved us, He loved us too much to leave us the way He found us. And the Spirit of God through the Word of God is working in your heart, bringing you back to where Jesus would always have had you to be. But Jesus is the center of everything. In verse 14, blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. Remember when Jesus came, he said, two commandments I give to you, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Within this, all the law and the prophets are contained. This is the centerpiece. Not only should he be the cornerstone, the, the, the preeminence in any church, but the, the manner in which we interact with him should be love. Well, why do we love him? Because he first loved us in the manner in which he did. And have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. But outside are dogs and those are those apart from Christ. Those are those who have rejected. They're not welcome. They are apart from sorcerers, the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The morning star appeared at the darkest point of the night to herald in the fact that the sun was about to rise. And Jesus said his first coming was a morning star onto the world. And as we get closer to the end, it darker and darker and darker it becomes, but his morning star light shines even brighter, heralding the idea that one day the sun will rise. And a new heavens and a new earth will be given. And in verse 17, John ends with an invitation. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. 
And let him who thirsts come. For whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. John ends it with the invitation that any who desire to come may come. The door is open for anybody. No one is too far gone. But will you heed it? Will you take the invitation that God is giving and offering to you? This invitation is replete throughout the New Testament. Jesus often said, come. The invitation through the apostles was to come. And now, here again, if we are going to occupy in these last days and be busy about our Father's business, it must include an invitation to those who are around us who don't know the Lord to come. To come and see. To come and hear. Guys, this is it. This is our moment. As Esther, we have been placed here for a time such as this. And like Mordecai said to Esther, listen Esther, if you choose to stay silent, please know that God is going to find another way. God is going to be faithful in fulfilling His promises even in a time such as this. But I want to be part of what God's doing. I want to be busy about what He has for us. Because personally, at my age, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. I want to be busy with what He has for me. And I don't think at any age that should matter. Because the only things that will last are those treasures that we store for ourselves in heaven. Jesus clearly told us that those things that we store here on this earth can be stolen or they can rust away or moths can eat them. They're temporary in nature. And even though we see those individuals who like to be buried with their material possessions, I even saw somebody being buried in a Cadillac. How's that? Now, Corvette, I could see. No, Cadillac. Cadillac, I'm not so sure about. I like, <laughs> let me rephrase that. One was very interesting. The man said, listen, I want to be buried with my money because I don't like my wife and I don't like her to have it. But we know it doesn't go with you. It's only those things that we have stored in heaven. Now, Jesus said one more thing, and I want you to be aware of it. He says, where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. That's where our heart is. Come. We need to be inviting people to hear and to see what God is doing. And then he concludes with a warning. Notice with me. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book, this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Are you concerned? Okay, now this is serious stuff. Now in that culture, it was common for the author, such as the apostles, to write an ending like this, because they wanted scribes to understand those who would copy these words, that nothing should be added or deleted. And many people think that maybe John initially added it simply for that purpose. But whatever his intention originally was, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit superseded that. And I don't believe he's writing to the scribes who are copying these letters. I believe he is writing these things to the hearers of this letter. He is writing these things to those who would hear it afterwards. That nothing should be added to this book. Nothing should be subtracted from this book. I want it just the way it is because this is the way God has given it to me. Now, though it specifically applies to this book, let us know and understand that the whole Bible cannot be tampered with by, God, by man. And God will hold us accountable to the manner in which the Word of God is handled. I was watching a video some time ago of a, uh, a, a group of people in a very remote section of the world, and they were flying Bibles in for the very first time in that people's language. And do you know how they met the planes? They were all dressed up in this beautiful 
clothing. They were playing their drums and musical instruments. When the Bibles were being unloaded, they wouldn't even touch them physically. They unloaded them in a way where people were carrying them on poles on top of what might look like pallets. They had such reverence. They had such love. They were so excited that finally they could read God's Word in their language. And there was such rejoicing. In fact, it went on to say that they actually celebrated 30 days. 30 days. But today, we throw our Bibles on top of a table. We throw them underneath our nightstands. Put them up on our bookshelves and never look at them again. The number of Christians reading on a daily basis is at an all-time low here in America. And I think the church is reflectant of that. The unhealthiness of Christians and churches today are a direct result of the lack of them reading devotionally the Bible each and every day. But let us know and understand that this Bible should not be tampered with. Nobody can add to it. Nobody can subtract from it. Now, one very important point. The Bible can be subtracted from and added to, apart from adding words or subtracting words from it. One writer stated this, Consider these more subtle ways of altering God's Word. For example, disobeying it, willfully rebelling against clear commands of Scripture. Is that not taking away from God's Word? How about disregarding, intentionally ignoring what is written in God's Word? How about number three, he says, distorting, purposely twisting the true meaning of God's word to accommodate our own personal opinions, or diluting it and adding other traditions or texts or the words of teachers, etc., as authoritative truths next to the word of God. I think those must be considered, and I think that we need to take, take heed to what he is saying. If I read the Word as a Christian and it tells me to do something and I choose not to do it, haven't I taken away from the effectancy in my personal life of the Word of God? The Christian church is wrestling today with two very, very important theological points. One is known as the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. What is Jesus sufficient in doing in a uh, person's life? Number two, the sufficiency of God's Word. What is God's Word sufficient in accomplishing, and what is it not efficient in accomplishing? Now, I have very high standards for both. I believe that Jesus Christ is all-sufficient. I believe His Word is all-sufficient, okay? Now, how that plays out in my life is a direct result of how I view Scripture and Jesus, meaning I am not looking to the wisdom of this world to add to the wisdom of God's Word. I'm content in it. Though I may not fully understand it, I am content with it, knowing that Jesus said, or God told us very clearly, that this Word and wisdom is superior to the foolishness, the wisdom of this world. All right, well, in closing, let's take it to the end. In verse 20 and 21, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The last words of John caused one writer to consider the last words of others throughout history. And one really caught my attention. I want to give this to you because I want you to chew on it this week. During the first century when John was exiled to the island of Patmos, the Roman Empire seemed unstoppable. They were huge. They were powerful. They were wealthy. They were the source of the great persecution against the early church. They are the ones that prohibited John from speaking and sent him to Patmos after their failed attempt to execute him. 
Rome seemed like a juggernaut that could never, ever, ever be stopped. Interesting that in 328 AD, when Constantine made Christianity the state religion, many in Rome were not happy about that decision. And when Constantine died, the next emperor in his place was Emperor Julian, who tried to do everything he could to reverse that decision. And on his deathbed, it is recorded that his words were these. The, his words were these. Five words. You have won, O Galilean. And he breathed his last breath. Isn't it fascinating that with the turn of various empires throughout the history of mankind, this one little man, 33 years old from Jerusalem, born in Bethlehem, residing in Nazareth, his message, his life's impact are still changing the world today after 2,000 years. And after the death and fall of the Roman Empire, Christianity continued to flourish around the world just as God said it would. Now, why do I end with this? Many of us are very discouraged about our nation, and rightfully so. We've talked about many of the things going wrong in our nation. We talked about our hope for change in our nation. We talked about the deceptiveness of individuals and authorities within our nation and around the world. And to some Christians, they may seem and appear to be unstoppable. May I encourage you that nothing is going to stop Jesus from doing what Jesus is doing. I don't care who's in office. I don't care what technology they launch. I don't care what, how much money they have. I am going to bet on Jesus. You know why? Because in the end, we win. And let's never forget that. Let's never forget that. And you know what? Because of that, we should have huge hope. We should have a huge hope. Because you know what? When it's all said and done, and we stand before Him, we're going to realize that He was the only one that mattered. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And hopefully it has put Him front and center back as the cornerstone of Calvary Chapel. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, it's the first of the month, and we are going to take communion together. So as uh, they play this last song, Mark will have you come on up. We ask you to take the elements back to your chair, and in a moment of private uh, prayer, take your heart before the Lord, confess anything that you need to confess, and take a moment to remember what Jesus Christ has done for you. The reason I say that is because if we are going to love God, we must remember how He first loved us. He loved us by giving His only begotten Son for us. That whomsoever shall believe shall not die but have everlasting life. That is foundational to our Christian faith. Jesus should be the centerpiece always, the preeminence. But our interaction with Him should be that of love. And we're not truly going to love him in the selfless, unconditional manner that he has called us to unless we realize that he has done that first for us.